I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode, you'll hear legendary Broadway playwright and thespian Charles Bush. Everyone is talking about the new American bitch. That was me! Me! I was the new American bitch! Oh my god. That and more, but before that, I want to talk to you about a product that legitimately changed my life. Casper mattresses are beautifully, obsessively engineered for a shockingly low price. They combine the springy latex and supportive memory foams to create this surface that just has just the right amount of sink and just the right amount of bounce. Time magazine named Casper one of the best inventions of 2015. I promise you, this mattress will not disappoint. When I got a Casper mattress, my sleep improved dramatically. I mean, it was like nirvana compared to the mattress I had before. And remember, it's free shipping and free returns to the U.S. and Canada. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. It's made in America, and you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com risk and using risk as the code. That's casper.com risk risk. Risk is also brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look professionally designed, regardless of your skill level, with no coding required. Intuitive and easy-to-use tools. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site to ensure security and stability. They're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, you can use the offer code RISK, that's risk, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Lemon Jelly behind me now. We are so excited at risk to be announcing two new tour dates for December. One is on the 15th of December in Detroit. We're coming back to Detroit, folks. We're coming back to the magic bag, and the theme that night on the 15th of December is funky. <laughs> Could mean funky like, you know, uh, oh my God, something's not quite right here. Something's funky. Or, um, you know, maybe you're the love child of Bootsy Collins. The next night, the 16th, we are coming back to Milwaukee. Holy shit, it's going to be so great to be back in Milwaukee. We're going to be at Collectivo Coffee on the 16th. The theme that night is eye-opening. Eye-opening. Like in Clockwork Orange. Or Unchan Andalou. Wow. There was a reference to avant-garde French cinema of the 20s. Yeah! <laughs> Okay, reel it in. I think I just blew out the mixer. Yes, so we are coming to those two cities. And if you want to pitch us a story, if you have an eye-opening story, or if you have a funky story, or if someone you know, if you're like, oh my God, mom, you have that gorgeous, beautiful story about the weekend that dad died, or holy cow, you have that outrageous, hilarious story about that party that one weekend, you know, one of your friends, have them pitch us, spread the word. And that goes for people who aren't in Detroit or Milwaukee, people who are, you know, have Christmas stories or Hanukkah stories or Kwanzaa stories. We're looking for those right now, too. You could be in Korea or Argentina and send in one of those stories because we record stuff long distance as well. So everyone out there, check out our submissions page and make sure you submit your stories. Now we're calling this week's episode Big Entrance. For one, there are these three wonderful stories, stories that are about birth or debuts or first steps. And because tomorrow... When you see this episode for the first time in your inbox, it will be Election Day 2016, when we are hoping and praying for the big entrance onto the world stage of the first woman president of the United States of America. This has been the most excruciating and alarming and really jaw-dropping and, and challenging of elections in my lifetime. I mean, of course, the contested election of 2000, the Bush versus Gore, the recount situation, was its own sort of colossal nightmare that I hope I never live to see that sort of thing again. But this year, 2016, we have seen the right wing in America drive the discourse so far into extremes that the vision for our future started to become authoritarian, racist, no longer at all rooted in <laughs> whatever is left of what we used to value as civility, reason. <laughs> as you can hear on Monday night, I am pretty confident that Clinton will win, but I also know that millions of Americans are going to be voting for insanity tomorrow. That millions will be voting for something that is profoundly dangerous to us all. And when I say us all, I mean the United States and the planet. So if you're hearing this on Tuesday, November 8th, get out there and vote and get others voting too. Now... In a little bit, we are going to hear from the wonderful, the remarkable, the one and only Charles Bush, who is one of the legends of the downtown theater scene and now of Broadway. Charles, when I first came to New York City, there was a play called Vampire Lesbians of Sodom that was just the talk of the town. He has had so many wonderful shows. The Allergist Wife was a big Tony Award winner. And you will soon hear what a joy Charles is just as a personality, as a raconteur in general. But before that, 
We have a story that comes to us from New York storyteller Mark Pagan. Mark has been making a real splash at all the storytelling shows in town. The Moth, Story Clutter. He does one-man shows and he does multimedia work as well. He's a remarkable artist and it was a thrill to finally have him on the show. Here he is at our show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. This is Mark Pagan with a story we call Regular Kid. Hey, everybody. Um, in seventh grade, it seemed like all I was doing was going to bar mitzvahs. And Josh Abramowitz, my best friend, came up to me and he said, dude, you're not Jewish, but we are going to hook you up with something for your 13th birthday. And him and my buddy Mike Cohen got together and they were going to invite everybody over to my house. And these guys were the most popular guys at Cabin John Middle School. My main thing is I just wanted Sonia to come. I had a thing for... Darlene from Roseanne, and she was like a Persian replica of her. And if she could show up, then my life would be perfect. So for this to happen, I had to take care of a few things. Need to get some new gear, some new guest jeans, new Jordans. Need to make sure that that thing was cool with my parents, and I needed to get potty trained. (laughs) So some kids... Most kids learn how to use the toilet by the time they're in kindergarten, not when they're growing their first mustache. Now, I want to be clear, it wasn't a problem with pee, super good peer. Uh, (laughs) Wasn't a bad wet or nothing like that. My issue was with pooping in the toilet. I didn't know until later, but it was a condition called incapricis. And it happens for kids where they withhold or control their bowel movements, and it can be due to like an early discomfort, It can be due to instability in the house, and in my case, it was a little bit of both. My dad was away most of the time, and my mom was pretty intense. And so I was just a scared kid. And I would look at the toilet bowl like it was a ghoul, and I hated sitting on this thing, and I just started holding it in. And my parents would take me to doctors, and the doctors were like, give him Metamucil, give him an enema, try a different diet. And my mom just, she ran out of options. So after a while, I was like, everything's cool, and I pretended for everything to be okay. And on the surface, it was, because I ate like a normal kid, I looked like a normal kid, and I did shit just differently. (laughs) And so every morning... What I would do is I'd go into our bathroom and I'd take toilet paper, revolve it around my hand, take that, put it in my underwear like a maxi pad, and then I would go about my day and at different points of the day, I would just little, little one out. So you and I might be talking and I might be delivering a deuce at the same time. (laughs) And it's not a good tactic for for multitasking. I'm sorry to dismay anybody who wants to try this. But uh, sometimes my body would just give up and it would be diarrhea. But either way, I would go into the bathroom and I would take this stuff out and sometimes I'd put more toilet paper in. And it was working. I wasn't proud of this at all. Like, it's not a skill set I wanted to share with friends. Like, you guys think you know how you're shitting. Let me show you something. (laughs) I felt terrible about it. I couldn't do sports because there were, there were locker rooms. I had to change in front of kids. But here's the weird thing, guys. I never got teased because of it. Teachers, kids, nobody ever said anything. So I figured like I was either the Harry Houdini of excrement, like I was just really good at making it disappear, or kids just smell like shit, which I think <laughs> is mostly true. But I had friends. I had friends. Not only do I have friends, I had like two of the most popular guys at Cabin John who were throwing me the biggest party in the world. And I had to get this dookie situation under control. <laughs> so I figured I should treat it like an athlete. And like I said, didn't play sports. I didn't know what that meant. But I'd seen Rocky Four about a dozen times. And it was a training montage. But I knew the most important thing is you needed a theme song. 
So I'm watching Pump It Up one night, and my favorite gangster rap group shows up, and they premiere their new video. And something clicks. I don't know what it was. And like some kids, they might have had Rafi or nursery rhymes, but I decided the ghetto boys are going to potty train me. So I had my mom take me to Sam Goody. She bought me the cassette single, Mind Playing Tricks on Me. I don't know if you guys know the greatest hip-hop song of all time. But basically, the song charts the paranoia of drug dealers in Houston's Fifth Ward, ostensibly. The way I saw it, it was really about the difficulty of bowel movements. It's a pretty seamless analogy. And so I had my song, I had my jam, and so I went home and I started this training regimen. So week one was what I called seat calibration. (laughs) Wasn't even used to sitting on a toilet seat, so each day I would just sit and move back one inch, one inch, one inch. And this was going great. I was a really good coach. Uh, I even wore a bandana when I was doing it. (laughs) Second week was something called seat extensions. And this is where Ghetto Boys came into play. I had my boombox in there. And I don't know if you guys remember hip-hop cassette singles. There was the clean side and then the dirty side. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was in there. I didn't want to call more attention to what I was doing with vulgar lyrics or anything like that. I figured my folks were just like, okay, he just really likes this song. So I played the clean version. And during these seat extensions, I just tried to elongate the amount of time that I was sitting on the toilet. So day one, play the song once. Day two, two times. Three times, third day, you get the idea. And by the third week, I decided it was time to drop a load. (laughs) So I sat down, played my Ghetto Boys, and I told my body, we're going to do this. And I loosened up. My body was like, my body must have heard me. And was like, we've been waiting 12 years for this. Because all of a sudden, the pipes got really loose, and I just, I don't want to get graphic, but there's no other way to do this. I felt a little bit of crowning happening. (laughs) And there was a slight moment, just a slight moment of a pinch, and I jumped up and pulled my pants up, and I said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I just had a cold sweat, and I was scared out of my mind. I was completely alone in this bathroom. And so the next day I went to school and I looked for Mike and Josh and this is it. I can't do this party. And I find them in the cafeteria and they say, dude, Sonia said she's coming. And um, she's cool with a slow dance. (laughs) What do you want for your song? I stood there and I just, I looked at them and I said, Tenderoni by Bobby Brown. (laughs) And I went home and I went to that bathroom and I turned that tape over to the motherfucking dirty side. (laughs) And I looked at that toilet and I was like, I ain't getting up off you until this gets out of me. I don't care if I miss my 13th birthday. I don't care if I graduate high school in here. We're doing this. And I'm not going to lie, there were like three failed attempts. But on that fourth time, I just sat on that toilet and I grabbed the sink and then the toilet paper holder and I scooted my butt back and brought my torso forward. And it was almost like an exorcism. I said, just get out of me. And my body got super loose. And I don't know if you guys remember Titanic, when they just start moving, they show like the engine room. It's like, pipes open, boys! <laughs> and I felt this, this like torpedo starting to make its way down. And it was almost like a roller coaster right when you get to the peak. And everything, everything just sort of paused. And I had this out-of-body moment where I looked at my life. I just saw everything. And I was like... I am tired of this shit. (laughs) And so I came back to the moment and I punished that fucking toilet. (laughs) Yo, I pushed out a log that felt like the size of a football field 
And when it hit the water, it sounded like a TKO bell. I could, that was the only evidence I had, really. I was like, that was it? That was it? And I just jumped up and looked, and I kept pointing alone in the bathroom going, I did that! I did that! And honestly, I think I kept it there for about 12 hours. It just kept coming back, going like, yeah. I made that happen. Now, you might be wondering a few things here. Did this cure the problem? And there is no hyperbole. That was my Super Bowl, and I never, ever, ever had a problem ever again. (laughs) Second thing you might be wondering, did I tell anybody? And I did. You guys tonight. (laughs) I mean, are you kidding me? I had to get through middle school. You think I would admit that? And middle school wasn't that bad because that party was off the fucking hook. (laughs) The whole world showed up, including Sonia, and we did have our slow dance, and it was basically my bar mitzvah. And it felt good. It felt really good to be a popular kid, but more importantly, it felt great to be a regular one. (laughs) Thank you. you a mile away. Yeah, you know, it's beginning to smell around here. Diarrhea, Can't you keep it in your goddamn pants? He's shit everywhere! Mommy, wow! I'm a big kid now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, my God. That was quite a... had no idea that was going on next door. Well, now, my story is an autumnal one. Yes, yes. It took place in the fall of 1975. I'm sure most of you are thinking, oh, you weren't even born then. You're very kind. That was my uh, junior year in college. Now, I grew up in New York City. And all my life, my great dream from the very beginning was to be on the stage, be in the theater, to be up there in the light. That's what I wanted more than anything. And so I somehow I got into Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, in the theater department. I don't know how I got in there. It was like a fluke, but they took me. And then I, well, I got there, and I just didn't fit in at all. I was never cast in a play. It's not good when you're in the theater department. <laughs> No, it didn't bode well for the future. And I remember in acting class, I, I did a monologue as Lola and Come Back Little Sheep, but it didn't go over very well. <laughs> I just didn't, I was too gay. I was too gay for Northwestern. I was too gay for the gay people. I, you know, they were all very sort of into kind of a clone thing in the mid-70s, and I was, sort of, I was kind of fabulous, and they didn't get it. They didn't want it. So I, I had to get out. I had to get out of there just for at least one semester. I had to get out of there. I saw on the bulletin board in the theater department a little advertisement for um, studying Scandinavian arts in Copenhagen. I said, I'll take it. I'll go. They took me in. Uh, It was to study uh, with Danish instructors who were speaking in English. And part of the deal was that you were supposed to live with the Danish family. I thought, no, that's not going to happen. But I did see in the, in the fine print, it said you could stay in an international dorm. So I thought, I'll take that. And I'm so glad I did, because I remember when I got there to Copenhagen, and by the way, you have to call it Copenhagen, because if you want to get laid, you have to say Copenhagen, not Copenhagen, because that's what the Nazis called it. Anyway, I digress. So uh, I remember, though, that there was, a, I knew a girl in the program named Heidi Seidel, and Heidi had been... She'd gone through four different Danish families. They all got rid of her. And uh, she was just an awful girl. And I, but, I do, but amusing, just the same. And I do remember that uh, overhearing her 
in a conference with this very severe Danish woman, the head of housing, Hannah Sorensen, and, and Heidi saying, I'm just not happy. And Hannah saying, it is not necessary in life to be happy. That was, that was the big, the two cultures didn't mesh. Well, anyway, so I stayed in this international dorm, and basically I was the only American student there other than this very flamboyant black queen named Garrett who called himself the diva, and everybody just referred to him as the diva. We bonded, we really had to, because we were only Americans in this basically communist dorm. And so, big, big, big poster of Lenin in the kitchen. So, uh, so anyway, well, Garrett said he was going to take me under his wing and make me a diva also. And he said, the whole thing of going to these classes, just, you don't have to, you know, bother with that. I'm, I'm going to show you Danish gay life. Now, in Northwestern, mind you, you know, I was, I was both too visible and invisible, if you can imagine that. And the diva, first he, he put a little sort of auburn rinse in my long, curly hair and a little bit of cola in my eyes. We found this fabulous sort of 1940s woman's mink coat that I wore over my tight jeans, my boots. I kind of looked like Maria Schneider in The Last Tango in Paris. <laughs> I, it, it was the height of my beauty. And so he took me to uh, Madame Arthur's disco. And that was like the main discotheque in, in Copenhagen. Gay disco. And we entered. And oh my God, suddenly from being invisible, I felt a kind of a, a power. Because the Danish gay guys in 1975, they either wanted black boys or pretty little queens. And so between the diva and I, we, we just had it all, you know, cornered. <laughs> And, and suddenly I, I was just the, the whole center. I was Sally Bowles. I was the center of everything. Oh, from then on, my God, well, the diva and I, we just, a, a typical day for us would be uh, cocktails at the Maskin Bar and then off to Madame Arthur's. When that bar closed at four in the morning, we'd be at the, the Why Not Club, you know, for, uh, oh, for champagne and a, a raw egg yolk. I was just divine, darling, divine, you know. Uh, well... I must say, one, a great moment for me was when the, uh, one of the bartenders said to me, oh, everyone is talking about the new American bitch. It was me, me. I was the new American bitch. Oh, my God. It was the greatest, greatest moment of my life. And I remember one time, when, you know, after I had left Madame Arthur's with 17 gentlemen callers off to an orgy. And the next day, the next day, I remember the, the doorman saying, oh... You always leave with all the most beautiful men. Oh, it's divine, darling, divine. Yeah. Well, uh, I met this very beautiful boy from Norway named Terrier. Oh, he was just kind of like Brian Jones in the Rolling Stones, but actually looked more like, like a very blonde, young Sandy Dennis with a big dick. <laughs> kind of, can you picture that? Yeah. And uh, so we, we, we sort of bonded, you know, and uh, he was just kind of amoral, but with this angelic look. And I remember one time uh, we met this guy, very well-dressed man, who, who was just stinko drunk, just could barely stand up. And somehow, I don't know why Terrier was bothering him, but anyway, he got this guy to take us to dinner. And, you know, we had this big Italian dinner in Copenhagen. And then afterwards, we somehow went to this guy's apartment, and he was so drunk, he could really keep his eyes open. And... Terry kind of instructed me to make out with the guy. So I was, and you know, and I didn't know what Terry was doing. He was pulling the guy's pants down and, and he then took his wallet and I said, Let's get out of here. I said, what? Oh, I, I suppose we, we left and he, he says, I'll give you half the money. I said, I don't want that money. I said, well, What are you going to do with all his IDs? We're going to throw him down the toilet. I said, It's terrible. You can't do that. Said, are you insane? So we did that and I felt so horrible, so guilty. And when I got back to my dorm, and I saw the diva, and I told him, I confessed the whole story. I said, I feel just horrible about this. That poor man. And the diva said to me, lesson number one in being a diva, never roll a drunk. <laughs> all right? Lesson to all of you. <laughs> now, uh, Terry, you would have thought, okay, now I would have just stayed away from him. I was so fascinated by this dark side of life. I'd led such a protected childhood and youth. And I know this sounds kind of nutty, but I wanted to see if I was true to my own persona, 
sort of whimsical and, you know, uh, what would it be like to place myself in all these odd situations and how would my personality change the, you know, the circumstances? Well, Terrier introduced me to his, I guess you'd call it his sugar daddy, who was a very handsome man, maybe 40 years old. He was, wasn't old and elegant man. He was a Swiss count, he said. And, uh, <laughs> I got the feeling he was married, but I don't know when he saw his wife because he was at Madame Arthur's every night with us. And he uh, was very, he was kind of like, if I was going to cast him, he was kind of a cross between uh, Kevin Spacey, uh, Antonio Banderas, and Omar Sharif <laughs> with a real big dick. Yeah. And he was very mysterious. He was very enigmatic. And he would do this thing where we'd have dinner and he would just look at me, and he could stare at you for minutes without blinking. And you'd think, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> I never could do I always blinked first, you know. And he had this kind of power over me. I never quite understood what he did other than being a count, you know. And um, well, he had, a, he had this associate named Bengt. And Bengt was the total opposite of him. Bengt was... Uh, Danish and big burly guy, blonde hair and a mustache and a big gap between his teeth. And there was just something very dangerous about him and dark. And I remember one day, uh, it was his birthday, and Teria said we had to go buy a bank's birthday present. So we went to a hardware store and bought him a crowbar, which I thought was odd. And Teria never had any cash with him, so I paid for the crowbar. Banks seemed to appreciate it. Now, uh, whenever I would, you know, go off with Count Rolando, since he was married, we always had to take him to my dorm room. But uh, one day he said, I'm going to take you someplace, and you must never tell anyone where you've been. I said, well, who do I know? I don't, you know. <laughs> so, please, please, you know. So we got in his car, and we drove way, way outside the city, into, it was kind of an industrial area. It kind of looked like this, in fact. And, um, yeah, and we parked the car outside this dreary, depressing, run-down building and got into this horrible little elevator. And he went to the, the third floor inside this banged-up door, and he, he opened it and turned on the light and this horrible little apartment was just crammed with the most extraordinary antiques, you know, French provincial gold-gilded furniture and Greek icons and, and classical paintings and statuary and fabulous big, looked like 16th century Spanish bed with a canopy. All the furniture was just flush against each other. They said, it really needs a decorator, you know, and you can't hardly move, you know, I wouldn't put that settee right next to the bed but we had sex there on this fabulous 17th century bed I knew that there was something wrong with Rolando and yet you know when you're young you're so easily just impressed and he made me feel like I was as valuable an acquisition as the Greek icon on the wall I felt so beautiful and desired, even though he was actually even rather cruel to me in some ways, and rather dismissive. Shortly afterwards, Rolando announced that he was going to take all of us to Rio de Janeiro for an extended vacation, Terria, Banked, and me. Well, I thought, I can't go. I had to flunk all my courses. I can't just, what would my family say? I, I can't do that. And, and Terry said, everything's going to be first class. I said, I can't go. And, you know, the, uh, Rolando said I was hopelessly bourgeois. And I felt just terrible. And so off they went. And I did my finals, but flunked two classes, passed two. That was good enough. And off Garrett and I went back to America where he was just another, you know, overweight black queen, and I was just another, you know, effeminate gay boy. I got back to uh, Northwestern, and it's early snow, and yet I was slightly different. I was. I, I remember at that time seeing a quote by the great poet Jean Cocteau, which said, whatever it is about you that disturbs people, cultivate that, because that's who you really are. 
and that gave me a kind of a strength. And I would get these postcards from Sur La Plage in um, Rio, you know, and it just really stuck it to me. And then, sometime later, I got a letter from Norway, and it was from Teria, and he had gone back to his little village in Norway, and he said that after they got back from Rio, there was this terrible front-page scandal in Copenhagen that Rolando had been convicted of running an international antique-thieving ring. <laughs> and and they were, he was in prison, Bengt was in prison, and hung himself in prison. Yes, the Rolando was sitting in stir for a long time. And I recalled the very last time I saw him, and we were sitting at the Maskin bar, and he had dismissed me again as being just so bourgeois. He started doing that stare thing on me again without blinking. And I thought, God damn it, I'm not going to blink. I think three minutes went by, and he blinked first. And then that, he couldn't leave it at that, my triumph. He then took his champagne glass and put it in his mouth and bit down. And the glass didn't shatter, but he just lifted out a perfect shape of his mouth in the glass. Well, how do you beat that? Well, I wasn't going to try that one. <laughs> but then I started thinking about it. You know, all this time went by, and I thought, he seems so much the stronger of the two of us so dominating. What kind of dreams did he have? His dream to run an antique thieving ring? You know, what kind of paltry dream is that? Where's that going to take you except sitting in the jug for years to come? And I thought about my own dreams of being a, a writer and being an actor, performer, and these dreams that I thought maybe were, I don't know, certainly were scary and big question mark, and yet they were beautiful dreams and strong dreams, and my dreams came true. Thank you. risk so here's the way it works around here i spend you know what four or five years sitting around thinking yeah i wonder if i'll ever be able to finagle the song ottoman by vampire weekend after a story then this story gets told and i'm like oh you're on you're on go vampire weekend stat and here we are now, we just heard from Charles Bush, who you can find at charlesbush.com. Before that, we heard an interstitial by the miracle worker of an episode editor, Jeff Barr. And before that, we heard from Mark Pagan, who you can find at markpagan.com. Now, before we move on, I just wanted to say that there is gloriously beautiful furniture to be found at article.com. And if you go to article.com slash risk, 
you'll find a $50 discount off your first order. Now, this is a direct-to-customer business model that allows radically better value, up to 70% lower cost for comparable furniture than your traditional designer furniture brands. No showrooms, no salespeople. It's low risk because there's a 30-day guarantee. You can return for any reason. Thousands of positive reviews, happy customers. These are gorgeous, modern and mid-century modern designs. My couch that I got from Article is the nicest piece of furniture I've ever owned. And like I said before, if you visit their website at article.com slash risk, Listeners of Risk will get $50 off your first order. That's article.com slash risk. Finally, what kind of monster would I be if I didn't take this opportunity to remind you that going to the post office is so old school. It's such a hassle taking the trip there. That's why over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com to get postage right from their desks whenever they need it, 24 hours a day. Stamps.com turns your computer and printer into a virtual post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. It's the better way to do mailing and shipping. Easy to use, really convenient, lets you focus your time where you want it on growing your business instead of time-consuming trips to the post office. No wonder over $2 billion in postage was printed just last year using Stamps.com. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story comes to us from someone who had never told a story live on stage before, but she did so in front of a huge audience at our last DC show, the one that Fern attended. Attended does does everyone remember Fern? <laughs> that doesn't matter. What matters is Jess Lombardo really brought her heart and soul on stage that night. Here she is now with a story we call One to Fight For. I needed that. <laughs> All right. So I moved to this wonderful city of DC back in 1999, or what I like to call DC's pre Whole Foods era. <laughs> I had just finished college and I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have much more than the pack on my back when I came out here. I just knew, though, that the black cat was here in D.C., and I was ready for a punk rock adventure. Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm what you call a Midwesterner. I grew up in this cozy, small town. My mom was my religion teacher. My dad, my high school principal. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't see a lot of action in my early years. <laughs> And after 16 years of Catholic school education, straight A's, and living my life by the book, I just wanted the opportunity to make some poor life decisions. I wanted to experience something real, like real world real. And as a former overachiever, I took this open attitude very seriously. For my first few months, I lived in a youth hostel and scrubbed toilets for my bed. After that, I kept seeing this ad in the city paper by this guy named Moondancer who wanted to start a commune out in Kensington. And I thought, hey, why not? So I moved out there. And in order to grow the commune, we'd invite people over, cook these giant meals with them, and then at the end of the dinner, 
moon dancer, who also looked like Santa Claus, would stroke his long white beard and ask, so how was the dinner? And everyone would be like, it was great, it was really good. And then Moon Dancer would say, and all of this came from the dumpster. <laughs> so basically, whoever was down with eating food out of the trash is who we lived with. It was one pretty interesting group. But eventually, I did make it down to 14th and U, moving into this group house right around the corner from the black cat. And for this young, wide-eyed Midwesterner, that kind of felt like the big leagues. I mean, there I was every night, hanging out in the red room, sandwiched between these hot men in their skinny black jeans and their flannel shirts and their big beards. My roommates were the most fun and awesome punk rock musicians. Ian Mackay from Fugazi would just show up in my living room sometimes. I know, I wasn't that cool to know who he was the first time, but... <laughs> It was like show and tell every day. And I wanted to touch and feel everything. <laughs> I finally felt like the free spirit I had always wanted to be. I moved from one adventure to the next. I made life happen. Literally. No, literally, I fucking made life happen and at 24 found myself accidentally pregnant with the guy who lived in the basement's baby. So maybe a little too free-spirited. <laughs> but let me tell you folks, that guy in the basement looked a hell of a lot like Jesus. And I took that as a sign, perhaps a catastrophic one. But if I had really moved here for a real-world experience, this was a pretty good plot twist. So my sweet, naive, 24-year-old self decided, I'm having a baby. And for the next nine months, I got my shit together. I said goodbye to my punk rock friends and got an apartment in Mount Pleasant. My dad gave me a 1987 Buick. Dude, I didn't even know how to drive. <laughs> And I worked my ass off to get a raise to a generous 30K. And every Saturday, my best friend was there for me. She'd pick me up on the back of her moped and we'd whirl around the city going yard sailing and thrift shopping and getting everything that baby would need. And at seven months pregnant, I must have looked like a Buddha on the back of that bike, but I felt like a badass. I mean, I had never been the cool kid. I was the bright, shiny, happy kid. But at 24, single and preggers, I wasn't so sure I still had that shine. However, on the back of that bike, I felt transformed. From that shiny kid to one kick-ass mom. Now, there were a few things that I did skip out on, like Lamaze class. I mean, those classes are kind of expensive. And this was 2002, the year Rachel had Ross's baby on Friends. <laughs> so I watched a whole season of Friends. And when Rachel finally pushed out Little Lemma, I was full term and ready to do the same. So D-Day comes and I waddle into Washington Hospital Center. I <laughs> I'm glad you like it there. <laughs> I distinctly remember my ride up that elevator, my contractions rising with each floor. Like floor one, hey, I'm the cute pregnant lady. Floor two, contraction hits. Floor three, that poor gentleman next to me, I just grabbed onto his arm and started clawing in. Floor four, I rivaled Medusa. <laughs> and as those elevator doors opened, and I walk towards the front admission desk, I can only imagine the hot mess I must have looked like. But those nurses didn't even flinch. And then one finally says, honey, this is your first child, right? Oh, you have hours of this. <laughs> Wait a minute. Where's the part where I just stroll the hospital floors waiting for my baby to come? I had seen that on Friends. 
Here I was in full-term labor. My contractions were less than 60 seconds apart. And these nurses are telling me I have hours to go? And with those words, I realize I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. So they move me to my bed, and finally, a voice of reason enters. Ma'am, would you like an epidural? Now, every woman goes through a certain conversation in their head at this point, like, epidural, dear Lord, yes, no, what will my friends think? But then I realize, I don't even have other mom friends to brag about this with, so I say, hell yes, bring on those drugs. And I honestly think it was the drugs that I needed because within five minutes and two pushes, Nika Suzanne came into this world and she was perfect. And I was her mom. Folks, free spirit or not, making the decision to have Nika is the bravest thing I have ever done. And her lying in my arms made me realize there was nothing I wanted more than to be her mom. That was a high. So they give us about a half an hour together and then they move Nika downstairs to be washed and clothed and I'm being moved downstairs as well. I start to feel this pain in my lower abdomen but the nurses assure me it's perfectly normal they give me some Advil, and they move me downstairs. But that pain just kept growing, and it grew angrier by the minute. Now, I tried to stay calm, but I had just pushed the equivalent of a watermelon out of my vagina, and I was kind of sure, Lamaze class or not, that that was supposed to be the climax. So I tell my nurse, Something's wrong. But she just looks at my chart and she says, Honey, you just had an epidural. It's wearing off and you're starting to feel your body again. So with each plea for help, that nurse just placated me with more drugs. Vicodin, Tylenol-3, Percocet. I should have been high as a kite, but that pain was traumatizing. And over the next couple of hours, I just grew more and more silent as the pain reached every part of my body. I have spent years trying to forget that sensation. But if I'm trying to convey it to you now, it sort of felt like someone taking the end of a broom and shoving it down my bowels over and over again. And the only person who could help me didn't believe me. What I should have done was tell that nurse that she was fucking out of her mind. But after too many years of Catholic school education, I had learned not to question things. So I just lay there, trying to get through it, telling myself, it's okay, you're gonna do this. And I remember my arm just instinctively starting to go up and down and up and down, just trying to give myself something to focus on to follow my breath. And then my breath starts turning into these moans and I'm moaning and moving and moaning and moving. And I don't even recognize the sounds coming out of me. My body is just trying to protect me, trying to get through it. And I do this until I can't take it any longer. And I pull myself up and I drop my legs over the side of the bed and I just knew something has to give. And as I stepped down onto the hospital floor, buckets of blood just start gushing between my legs which is just an absurd amount, and I know if I would have been watching this scene, I would have been freaking out. But I go into survival mode, and I crawl through that blood to the bathroom, smearing the walls as I hovered over the toilet for more to spill out. And I remember the feel of those cold white tiles 
as I leaned my head against them, just thinking, this has got to end. But it didn't. Blood just kept spilling out of me. And I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know how to fix this. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I just wanted back to my daughter. And so I decide to try to get back to my bed. And I get down on all fours and I start crawling there. But as I go to hoist myself into the bed, just lifting my head is too much. I have the strength of a Gumby doll. And with that lift up, I fall backwards, slamming my head against the wall and passing out in my own pool of blood. I don't even know how long I was left there. What I woke up to was that nurse's scream as she ran out of my room, and then a doctor rushing in who immediately determines that I'm hemorrhaging, but then just barks. This woman is bleeding to death. Get her to surgery now. I was covered with my own blood. The floor was covered with my blood. The walls were covered with my blood. But never once had I thought that I could be dying. I had just become a mom. I was Nika's mom. And I don't know if you get a choice when you stand on that ledge between life and death, but I knew I wasn't ready to let go. I wasn't ready to let her go. And so as they roll me down to surgery, I just keep thinking, don't pass out, don't fall asleep. Think of Nika, think of her round face and those hazel eyes. Think of the mound of dark, dark hair. Think of her tiny hands and those teeny, tiny fingernails. Don't fall asleep, don't leave her. And it was hours of surgery and two blood transfusions till I woke up again. And though much more feeble than before, I was back. And after a whole night away from Nika, they bring her in and they lay her on my chest. And that little girl instinctively reached out her hand and grabbed tight to my pinky. And I look at her and I whisper, I will go to hell and back for you, kiddo. I love you so much. And that's how our life started out together. Now, I want you guys to know that I truly loved my early experiences in DC. They helped mold me into the fun and vibrant person that I am today. But it really is Nika who gave me my roots to flourish into the person I was always meant to be. See, I realized life gets real when it's not just about moving from one adventure to the next. It's about finding the one you're willing to own, to really fight for. And I am grateful every day to get to own this one. Thank you. Sing at the top of your voice Love without fear in your heart Feel, feel like you still have a choice If we all light up, we can scare away the dark Wish our days away, spend our weekends in bed we drink ourselves stupid and work ourselves dead and all just because that's what mum and dad said we should do. We should run through the forests, we should swim in the streams, we should laugh, we should cry, we should love, we should dream, we should stare at the stars and not just at screens. You should hear what I'm saying and know what it means to sing. Sing at the top of the voice. Love 
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Passenger behind me now with a song called Scare Away the Dark. (laughs) I had Tuesday, Election Day in mind when I chose this title. Also, Jess's story. I thought it was good to go out on some the ordeal of her giving birth. It feels kind of like the ordeal of us choosing a new president. Let us all make sure that that situation, too, has a happy ending. Listen, we are coming to so many wonderful places very, very soon. On November 11th, we're in New Orleans. Come on out, New Orleans. That's going to be a hell of a show. On November 12th, Baltimore. You can't miss our first Baltimore show, folks. Come on out and see us. Now, on November 16th, we're back in Brooklyn at the Bell House. On November 18th, we're in Chicago, Illinois. Come on out, Chicago, for crying out loud. That's November 18th. November 19th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. That's going to be a hell of a show. Jackie Hoffman will be there. On December 15th, we're in Detroit, Michigan. Now, we are taking pitches for that one. The theme is funky. You can pitch us at wristdeshow.com slash submissions. On December 16th, we're in Milwaukee. Tell all your friends we're coming to Milwaukee on December 16th. Still taking pitches for that one. The theme is eye-opening. Pitch us at wristdeshow.com slash submissions. On January 27th, we're in San Francisco, California. On February 17th, we're back in Carborough. North Carolina, the theme that night is what? And uh, we're taking pitches for what? It's uh, riskdashow.com slash submissions, folks. Everything else you want to know about Risk, you can find at risk-show.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. And if you want to learn anything about storytelling training, that's one-on-one training, or video courses you can take in your own time, or corporate workshops, we're at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Well, we wish we were happier, thinner and fitter. We wish we weren't losers and liars and quitters. We want something more, not just nasty and bitter. We want something real, not just hashtags and Twitter. It's the meaning of life. And it's stream live on YouTube But of a Gangnam style Still get more views And we're scared of drowning And flying and shooters But we're all slowly dying In front of fucking computers So sing Sing at the top of your voice All love without fear in your heart Can you feel
her sing Sing at the top of your voice Love without fear in your heart Feel Feel like you still have a choice If we all light up We can scare away the dark Bing, bing, bong, bong. I have a bad case of diarrhea. 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 I have a bad